The True Crime Beyond Bad podcast may contain material that is of a violent and graphic nature. This podcast may not be suitable for some people. You have been warned. Hello and uh, welcome to the True Crime Beyond Bad podcast. My name is Rob and I'll be your host. This is episode number two, so uh, thank you so much to everyone that listened to episode one and also those of you that subscribed. That is awesome. Uh, I had more listeners than I expected, so hopefully we can keep the ball ball rolling. Uh, This episode will focus on Australian serial killer Peter Norris Dupas, He was active in one way or another from the 70s to the 90s. Uh, When researching Dupass, I came across a lot of information that I thought would be relevant to the podcast. So that being the case, I will make this a two-part episode so as not to try and cram too much information into one. Um, My podcast is now available on the Apple iTunes Stitcher and Spotify platforms and you can get it through any of your podcast apps uh, just uh, just search for True Crime Beyond Bad uh, also um, I have a website which you can check out at www.truecrimebeyondbad.com all one word and uh, you can listen to the episodes there and you can leave a comment uh, also you can search uh, YouTube and I will post it on YouTube as well Anyway, uh, let's get into it. Okay, Peter Norris Dupas was born in Sydney, Australia on the 6th of July 1953. He was the son of a taxi truck operator, George, and Merrill Dupas who ran Tupperware parties. He was born healthy and is the youngest of three children. He moved to Melbourne with his family as a small boy. He was much younger than his brother and sister and therefore his parents treated him as an only child or like an only child. His parents doted over him uh, because he was the youngest and the baby of the family. His mother was extremely protective and bossy and his father was a perfectionist who made him feel inferior. When he started primary school, he was short and overweight and built like a dumpling. Because of the way he looked, he was bullied and his nickname was Pugsley after the Adams Family character. He was often the butt of jokes at school because of his looks and because of his slow learning, despite his apparent warm and loving family. When the family moved to Melbourne, I'm not sure what year that was, as it was not mentioned anywhere, they moved to the leafy suburb of Mount, of Mount Waverley, where he attended Waverley High School. He wasn't well liked at high school, and like primary school, he was bullied and his fellow students found him to be aloof and dominated by his parents, especially his mother. Dupas was driven to and from school in a big white car and did not mix with other students. The only time he ever mixed with other students is when he was involved in schoolyard tussles after being tormented because of his weight and learning difficulties. Uh, 
He became an overweight and obviously unhappy teenager with limited social skills. Dupas came to police attention when he was still at school, at just 14. While living in Mount Waverley in February 1968, he became good friends with a neighbour, a 27-year-old mother. He saw her in a kitchen one day preparing dinner and asked if he could help. She said she, he could come and help peel the potatoes. After entering the woman's house, he entered the kitchen to help peel the potatoes. He picked up a knife. For no apparent reason, he then repeatedly stabbed the woman, inflicting several wounds. The attack was unprovoked. Dupas rushed at her while holding the vegetable knife. The woman told police in an interview, He had the handle in his hand and the blade was pointing at me. He then launched forward at me and made a stabbing movement at my stomach with the knife. He did not say anything and I was saying, Peter, what's wrong? I managed to grab a hold of his hand holding the knife. We struggled violently for a long time. Almost straight away he knocked me down onto the floor and he fell on top of me. I kept trying to talk to him, trying to find out what was wrong. When he couldn't get a good lunge at me with the knife, he grabbed my hair and I started to become exhausted and I started to panic. I then started to scream as loud as I could. As I was screaming, he placed his hand into my mouth and tried to force his hand down my throat. When he did, I could not make any sound. He kept on covering my nose and my mouth with the palm of his hand. We were still struggling violently on the floor. I was trying to crawl and wriggle along the floor. All of a sudden he stopped struggling with me, looked at the knife, turned it towards himself and then slowly let me get up. He took a long time and it all happened so very slowly. I finally got to my feet and after a lot of coaching, he let me take the knife from him. I don't remember what I did with the knife, but I hid it somewhere. After I did this, he became very hysterical and nearly fell on the floor. He was sobbing and crying. The woman tried to comfort Dupas and took him to the lounge room. Dupas told her to call the police, but instead she rang his mother and his brother at work. They arrived at the house in about 10 to 15 minutes. The woman later told police she pleaded with Dupas to release her, but he told her, I can't stop now, they'll lock me up. When apprehended, Dupas told police he did not know why he had attacked the woman claiming he couldn't even remember having the knife in his hand. Despite what had happened, Dupas was treated leniently in being placed on probation for 15 months, ordered to have psychiatric treatment and admitted to La Rundle Psychiatric Hospital. Dupas was wrapped over the knuckles with a feather, considering what he had done to the woman. He had inflicted several stab wounds, scratches to her face and neck and back bruising. At the same time of this happening, the bodies of two elderly women who had died of natural causes were, hor were horribly mutilated in a nearby hospital morgue. Was this the work of Dupas? Both the bodies had had their breasts and vaginas removed and long deep cuts were slashed into their thighs. This was to become a trademark of Dupas, but he was never convicted of the mutilation. After his stint at La Rundle, he completed year 11 of high school and started working as an apprentice fitter and turner with General Electric in the outer eastern suburb of Notting Hill. 
He appeared to be an ordinary young man, but with no obvious friends and no apparent interests. Dupas's second brush with the law followed in March 1972, when he was convicted for being unlawfully on premises after being found in the rear yard of a house in Oakley. He was caught lurking around by the homeowner. Twenty months later, he was convicted of rape, housebreaking and stealing. He parked his car in front of a home in the eastern suburb of Mitcham on November the 5th, 1973, and lifted the bonnet to pretend that he was having motor problems. He knocked on the victim's front door. When she answered the door, he pointed to his car and asked the woman who answered the door if he could borrow a screwdriver. The woman went back to look for a screwdriver. Dupas, armed with a knife, let himself into the house and threatened the woman. He grabbed hold of the woman's 18-month-old baby by the arm to reinforce his threat of violence. He tied the woman's hands and feet and took her to the bedroom. He fondled her breasts and bit her nipple before raping her. Dupas slapped the woman around during the horrifying rape. Dupas repeated the ruse of car breakdown to enter the home of two other women in the same area. He stole money at one house, but did not commit any crime in the second incident due to the woman becoming suspicious with Dupas's story and telling him her husband was due home and that he would help him. Dupas immediately turned around and left. When the cases were investigated, the women all gave the same description of Dupas and that the perpetrator was driving a shiny red car. About two weeks later, the police knocked on Dupas's parents' house door to speak to Peter. After some quick questioning, Dupas was asked to accompany the police to the Ngunnawading Police Station. Dupas was interviewed and charged with rape, housebreaking and stealing with the intent to commit felony. On the count of rape, he was sentenced to be imprisoned for nine years, and on each of the breaking enter counts, 26 months imprisonment, cumulative upon each other. They were to be served concurrent with the sentence of the first, that makes the total of nine years, a fixed five-year term to be served before becoming eligible for parole. Senior Detective Ian Armstrong of the Ngunnawading CIB wrote the Crown Solicitor on June 6, 1974 with this message. He, Peter Dupas, is a very dangerous young person who will continue to offend with females and I'm concerned Dupas will possibly cause the death of one of his victims if he is not straightened out. How right he was. Dupas was sent to the Mont Park Psychiatric Hospital where he was allowed to come and go as he pleased, which to me is just absolutely crazy. Even worse, no records were kept of the convicted rapist's departure and return times, which is, again, just so, so crazy. Dupas was sentenced on September 30th, 1974, and re-offended less than four months later on January 6th, 1975. He was arrested for loitering with intent and offensive behaviour after he was found in a female showers at the McRae Foreshore Caravan Park. And McRae is a beachside suburb here in Melbourne. He was apprehended after the police operation was put into place. He denied that he was peeping in the foreshore toilet and shower area. He was identified by several people, 
For this offence, Dupass was fined $100 plus $44 court costs. It now should have been obvious his behaviour was something far more sinister than just a peeping Tom. The convicted rapist was released on September 4th, 1979, following recommendations for his bail, even though there was the precautionary rider that it was felt this man will need a great deal of supervision while on parole. After being on parole for two months, Dupass re-offended with four separate attacks on women. He even raped one of his victims in the public toilet in Frankston, an outer beachside suburb. In another attack, an elderly woman was stabbed in the chest before foiling his attempt at raping her. He wore a balaclava and was armed with a knife in each attack and must have left his victims with permanent mental scarring. Dupass said in a record interview with police, I have had a problem for about six years. I am glad I got caught. It all started again about two weeks ago. I don't know if it was because my girlfriend left me or what it is. I just find it hard to mix with people. I just don't know what to say. Dupass was convicted of rape, malicious wounding, assault with intent to rob and indecent assault. Despite the escalation of the viciousness of his attacks, there was no increase in penalty. The prosecution was shocked when Dupass was sentenced to six and a half years jail with a minimum of five years. Dupass served five years and was released on parole in February 1985 and was soon back to his old tricks. On March 3rd, 1985, he went to a beach at Blegari to sunbake. A 21-year-old woman also decided to go to the beach that day. She left for the beach after telling friends she would return about 4pm. The woman parked her car and walked with her dog along the access track to the beach and noticed that there was very few people in the vicinity. There were half a dozen surfers in the water and a man throwing sticks for his dog on the beach. The man with the dog was Dupass. Dupass was closely watching the woman and waiting for his opportunity. Dupass approached the woman who was sitting on some jagged rocks. He mentioned to her the rocks are sharp and he smiled. The woman feeling uncomfortable walked back towards her pile of clothes that were laying further up the beach on the sand. Dupass was there again, bare-chested and wearing jeans. He approached her again and made a couple of comments she did not hear. Now sensing danger, the woman brushed past Dupass, went as quick as a snake and just as dangerous, he grabbed her and put his arm around her throat. He then held a knife to her throat and told her, If you struggle, I will hurt you. The knife he had was brown-handled with a silver blade. It was similar to a paper knife. He held the knife to her throat and said, Don't struggle, I won't hurt you. If you struggle, I will hurt you. Then he ordered her to the sand and forced her on her stomach. The woman screamed. Dupass put his hand over her mouth. He had placed the knife on the sand. The woman reached out to grab the knife and he snapped, Don't be foolish. He rolled her on her back, pulled down her bikini top and started fondling her breasts and kissing her. Dupass then told the victim, I will take off your panties. He then performed oral sex on her before he removed his jeans and knelt between her legs. He said, Look what I have for you. The woman in desperation 
tried to make herself sick while placing her fingers down her throat and told Dupas, I think I'm going to be sick. She asked him, why are you doing this? Why are you hurting me? Dupas did not answer and proceeded to rape her. When he was finished, he dressed himself, pushed her to the rocks and fled the scene. The woman was left shaking and sobbing on the beach before walking to the water's edge and trying to get attention of the surfers. She then turned to two men walking to the water from the beach track. The woman told them, I have been raped. Can you take me to my car? At first the men found it difficult to believe what they had been told, but she was crying so hysterically. One of the men took off to catch up with Dupas. The man caught up with Dupas and grabbed him, holding him. Dupas was denying that he had done anything wrong. Dupas was handed over to police from the Rosebud Police Station, where he was questioned. He denied the attack at first, but then later admitted raping the woman and stating she had not encouraged him. In an interview, he said that he knew it was wrong, yet he did not want to hurt the woman and even said, I'm sorry for what happened. Everyone was telling me that I'm okay now. I never thought it was going to happen. All I wanted to do is live a normal life. Dupas later tried to hang himself while in the Frankston police cells, but it was difficult to know whether he really was attempting to end his life or making a play for help. Regardless, it might have been better had he succeeded, as his failure to kill himself resulted in the deaths of three innocent women. This time he was sentenced to 12 years imprisonment with a minimum of 10 years. He pled guilty to one count of indecent assault with aggravating circumstances and one count of rape. Judge Leckie told him in sentencing on June 28, 1995, the evidence in relation to these offences is that you went in your car to the beach in the vicinity of Blair Gowrie, got out of the car, taking with you a knife with the intentions of using that knife, should that opportunity present itself, to frighten a female so that you could have intercourse with her. Dupas was a young man with massive sexual and psychological problems and despite lengthy terms of incarceration was close to full metamorphosis as a monster and killer. He knew he had a serious psychological problem and shortly after his incarceration at Pentridge Prison tried to commit suicide. Although no details are available, he wrote a note to his family starting with Dear Mum and Dad and he apologised for his criminal sexual behaviour. Nine years later, while serving his sentence for the rape at Blair Gowry, psychiatrist Dr Bartholomew spent one and a half hours with Dupas after having dealings with him over earlier convictions. Dr Bartholomew suggested that Dupas would not admit the truth of his earlier convictions and later was resistant to treatment. Dupas was prescribed drugs to resist his sexual drive but without much success. In a report to the Adult Parole Board, Dr Bartholomew said, My main concern is that this man had three separate rapes against his name and some aggravated sexual behaviour. Before the rapes, this period of freedom between rapes 1 and 2 and 2 and 3 was very short and he had really had little or nothing to be termed treatment. He has some capacity to threaten or attempt suicide when depressed and miserable. 
Dr. Bartholomew suggested it might take some considerable time to resolve Dupass's problem that suicide must be considered as the convicted rapist had a very brittle personality. Another report from a doctor at Montpark stated that Dupass did not present the appearance of a psychiatrically ill person. Report added that Dupass did not acknowledge the need for ongoing treatment but said he would quite readily keep appointments if directed to do so. In other words, he appeared to lack motivation. During the latest term of imprisonment, he again was treated at the Larundel Psychiatric Hospital and it was during this period he met his future wife, Grace, a much older woman. She was 52 when Dupass met her, 16 years his senior, while she was working as a mental health nurse at Pentridge in 1986. Grace, a divorcee with four adult children, later befriended Dupass and felt some moral responsibility for him, perhaps through pity. Grace believed Dupass was a model prisoner who never caused any problems and, when, and was used as a handyman in his part of Prison G Division. However, marriage was never going to be a formality and when permission was refused, the matter went before the Ombudsman and the Health Department. The matter eventually was sorted out and the couple was married in August 1989. It was a strange marriage with Dupass in prison. Grace continued to visit Dupass, but she felt there was no real love. Grace said in an interview with police, If Dupass was capable of love, then he would have loved me, but I do not know if he, he had the capacity. I now regard that I was one of his possessions, no different to any piece of furniture, vehicle or clothing. When Dupass was nearing possible parole, psychiatric reports were filed in December 1990 indicating he was still a risk to society. One report indicated that Dupass's case would take some considerable time to resolve. Another indicated that if Dupass was released, he would require the maximum possible supervision. When Dupass was released in 1992, after serving just seven years, he went to live with his wife at Karlsruhe. Despite all his wife had done for him, Dupass felt hard done by and complained that the house was not grand enough and that her car was not good enough for him. The couple applied through the Common Equity Rental Cooperative for a rented house in Wood End and finally moved there in 1993. While Dupass was looking for work, his wife was the breadwinner. They had, few, they had very few friends. Dupass shared very little of his childhood, but he did tell his wife that he had a very unhappy childhood, not only because he was overweight, but also because he lived in a spotless, almost sterile house in which he wasn't even allowed to put his fingers on the windows or walls or walk in shoes on the carpet. Peter and Grace Dupass lived quietly and modestly, their monthly highlight being a shopping visit together to Sunbury, usually on pension day. It was a humdrum existence with Grace working as a casual at a special accommodations residence. Grace told police in a later interview, I never heard him yell. If he did get upset, he became very morbid. He would stare at the floor and just sit there. He had great trouble looking people in the eye. His eyes would dart around rather than make contact with the other person's eyes. He did not have another noticeable trait. Without warning, he would have bouts of body shaking and severe perspiration. This would happen frequently. 
on a weekly basis. He gave no explanation for it other than saying he was shaky. I got the impression he had been like this for many years. Grace also told police, Yeah, he had terrorised women with a knife before he met me. He never showed a preoccupation with knives around me. Once released from prison in March 1992, Dupas lived with her until again reoffending, but not before being involved in another incident which drew the attention of police. A teenage girl was riding her horse down a Kyneton Lane on September 23, 1993, when she noticed a car stop in front of her. The man in the car wound down a window and told her that her horse was bleeding. The girl jumped off her horse to see what was wrong and while she was looking for any sign of blood on the horse, the man approached her from the rear of his car. The girl told police in a statement, As he approached me, he said, Here, let me hold the reins. The blood's around the back or something like that. I didn't let go of the reins, but he took hold of them. While the girl was examining the horse, the man put his left arm around her shoulders. He said to her, Now you are off your horse and I am out of the car. We can have a good time. The girl said no and snatched the reins from him and swung the horse's rear around to put the animal between herself and the man. She mounted and galloped away. She looked behind her and could see the man in the car moving towards her, but as she tried to get up the horse along the road, it panicked and the girl had trouble controlling it. She slowed down, but only to turn to the man and snarl, You fucking dirty bastard. He replied, Get on the fucking side of the road, before driving off. Her description fitted Dupas most perfectly. In her statement to police, the girl said the man was in his late 30s to early 40s. He was about 5 foot 2 inches to 5 foot 4 inches tall. He was shorter than her. He was wearing gold frame glasses, had a round face, short hair, blondy brown. He spoke like an Australian and smelt strongly of cigarette smoke. Dupas was a smoker. The girl had had a narrow escape. This, however, was not the end of the matter. On January 7, 1994, the girl went to the Kyneton Police Station and identified a blue station wagon as the one driven by Dupas. Police then took her to the Kyneton Magistrates Court building and asked her if there was anyone there who looked like the man who had approached her the previous September. There was approximately 40 people in the room, including some police officers. The girl recognised a man sitting on the bench near the doorway. The detectives asked if she identified anyone and she pointed at Dupas and said, I'm certain he is the one who attacked me. Dupas was not charged over the Kyneton Lane incident. He was in the courtroom for something far more sinister. Wearing his trademark balaclava, he attacked a woman sitting on a toilet at Lake Epilock in a public restroom. This had happened on January 3, 1994. Unable to control his deviant urges, Dupas drove to Lake Epilock and parked near a group of people, which included the young lady he attacked. The group of people had spent the day water skiing. After making small talk with the group, Dupas got in his car and drove about 200 metres to the end of the car park where the public restroom was. About an hour later, the woman who had been water skiing 
entered the public restroom to use the toilet. She was sitting on the toilet when Dupas burst in. She saw a man wearing a balaclava and holding a long-handled knife move towards her. She tried to slam the toilet door shut, but Dupas was too quick, and as the woman tried to defend herself, her left hand was slashed. Dupas tried to turn the woman toward him, but she resisted and screamed. Dupas tried to drag her out of the cubicle, but couldn't do so, so he fled. The woman rushed from the toilet block toward her friends and told them what had happened. They took off after Dupas, but he had driven away. Three of her male friends, including her fiancé, jumped in a car and chased Dupas. Dupas had fled down a gravel road at a very high speed, with the four men following close behind. Due to the high rate of speed, Dupas lost control and spun his car 180 degrees and came to a stop. The men jumped out of their car and dragged Dupas out of his car. They pushed him face down onto the bonnet of his car and held him there. Dupas protested his detainment. One of the men searched Dupas's car and found the long-handled knife on the back seat. Dupas was lucky the men had not taken the law into their own hands and simply detained him. One of the men ran into a nearby house where he called the police. Police quickly arrived and arrested Dupas. Dupas's situation worsened the following day when police visited his wife at the Wood End home. Grace told police that when she arrived home from work, she found that the bed clothing had been disturbed and found a pornographic video and a book of love positions laying on the bed. Grace had never seen these items before. Dupas had told his wife that he was taking a fishing trip that day. Despite Dupas's atrocious record for sex attacks, he was handed a sentence of just three years and nine months, with a minimum term of two years. Dupas had pleaded guilty to false imprisonment, but avoided a charge of attempted rape because of lack of evidence. The police were devastated with this sentence. Dupas was eventually paroled after serving just under two years, leaving prison in September 1996 and moved into a flat in Rose Street, Brunswick, an inner north Melbourne suburb. His wife had left him soon after the Lake Epilogue incident. Dupas found himself a job as a general hand at Blue Diamond Furniture in Thomastown. Dupas spent 12 months with Blue Diamond and left to start making furniture from his garage at home. He had suffered from repetitive strain injury, RSI, and had surgery in an effort to overcome the problem. During Dupas's time with Blue Diamond, two women were killed in appalling circumstances, with another to meet her death seven months after he resigned. The third killing of Nicole Patterson led to his arrest and conviction for the earlier murder of 40-year-old prostitute Margaret Maher, and then of Mercina Helvargas. Okay, we're going to leave uh, the podcast there for part one, and uh, hopefully you found that interesting. Uh, I will get to the second part as soon as possible. Uh, hopefully I'll get it done before the fortnightly upload. Um, if I can get it done quicker, I will get it done and, and uploaded as soon as possible. 
But uh, thank you for sticking with us. And, um, yeah, hopefully we will catch you for the next part two. I'll see you all later. Plan to do things again and I went berserk.